This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about coping with loss. This is a challenge most of us are going to face at some point in our lives, whether through bereavement or other significant challenge. My guest today is Dr Lucy Hone. Lucy is my co-director and friend at the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience and a world leader in the field of coping with loss. Lucy's had to apply all of her resilience research and knowledge to coping after the tragic loss of her beloved daughter, her 12-year-old daughter, in a road accident some years ago. Since then, Lucy has written Resilient Grieving, Finding Strength and Embracing Life After a Loss That Changes Everything. Her depth of knowledge and first-hand experience of coping with trauma, challenge and change have meant that Lucy has been increasingly in demand in international media over the past year. The arrival of COVID-19 also saw Lucy's TED Talk on coping with loss go viral and being shared all around the world. Together, Lucy and I have been working on an online programme on coping with loss. Anyone who does this work will know how fundamentally our lives are changed by loss and how good it feels to be able to help people on their darkest days. And certainly I know that that is Lucy's primary motivation for this work. Kia ora Lucy and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Hi there Denise, it's great to be here with you today. So Lucy, do you want to tell us a little bit about why you got into this work? Yes, absolutely. I guess the reality is and was for me that when Abby died, I was pretty appalled by the grief resources and the expert advice that we were given. You know, we were told that um, we we really ought to be thinking about writing five years of our life off to her loss. Um, we were told we were prime candidates for divorce family estrangement and mental illness. And, you know, it seemed to me that the only literature and advice we were given was really passive in tone. Mm -hmm. But you and I come from the field of resilience psychology, where all of our training and all of the research informs us that there are ways that we can behave, ways of thinking and ways of acting that really do help people navigate trauma and change. Mm -hmm. And that we've seen this in the research time and time again. And I know that you were really shocked to find that the fields of bereavement and resilience weren't connected because for you, that made so much sense. In fact, I think one of your... One of your earliest thoughts that crystallised for you, to me, really epitomises a resilient, resilient approach. And that was, if you want to share that with people, it was that thing of don't lose what you have. Mm. So I, I do remember standing in the kitchen thinking, choose life, not death. Don't lose what you have to what you have lost. And so I did have a real urge not to... A resistance to the pathologising mm. of bereavement when actually I was pretty determined that, um, you know, bereavement is a normal part of life. And I wasn't hoping to avoid grief or any of those negative emotions that came with Abby's, you know, terribly painful 
immobilizing, incapacitating loss. But I did want, so desperately yearned to be a proactive participant Mm. in my, I guess, my adaptation to that loss. Um, So I was shocked at the lack of nexus between the fields of bereavement psychology um, and resilience psychology. And I guess really what's happened for me is that in the period since, it's now nearly um, six, it is six years since Abby died, that my, um, my way of climbing out of that black hole of mourning and grief was to kind of make something good come from the bad, you know. So it's been my absolute mission to be the bridge between resilience psychology um, and all of those really important findings and bringing those to the bereavement context and really examining, you know, what is useful here. And Lucy, you know, you actually have coined the term resilient grieving, um, and you have this is this is your offering to the world. So tell us a bit about what resilient grieving means to you and how do you describe or define it? So I think firstly, it's really important to um, dispel any illusions that being resilient in your adaptation to loss, resilient grieving is not about um, denying grief or being stoic. You know, it's not about hardening up, as they'd say in New Zealand or the British stiff upper lip. It's really ultimately about choosing to survive this loss and being really determined to take control where you can and simultaneously know that you just have to surrender to the process at times. So I think it's about continuing to live while you are grieving. I love it. And the words that are that are jumping out to me here around choosing to survive the loss, taking control where you can, surrendering where you can't. And then I know you also say being your own experiment, seeing what works for you. Yeah, yeah I was deeply inspired by Austrian psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl. You know, that very famous quote of his mm. where he says that everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of human freedoms is our choice to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose your own way. Mm-hmm. And and equally, it is him that says, be your own experiment. You know, try things out. See what works for you, because everyone's different. Mm-hmm. And I know you wanted to give people a new way of thinking about grieving, where they could be more proactive in the process. And I think that's... that's um, a really wonderful gift to give people, to give people tools to adapt and and actually go through it in whatever way is going to be useful for them. And and certainly, Denise, in all of our work and all the training we do um, in resilience and resilient grieving, the main feedback that astonishes me is this desire for tools that people have Mm -hmm. that really hadn't been um, satiated before. So what I always am hearing from people, they're just, is that, Thank you for the tools because they had this desire to be proactive in their grief response. Mm. Um, and also, oh, it just horrifies me that so often they say, thank you for validating my wish to continue to live. Um, and I think, you know, that does speak to the fact that grief has been massively 
pathologized and somehow people have ended up thinking that there's something wrong with them if they want to go on and live or if they adapt well if they continue to be able to find pockets of positive emotion in their day yeah so lucy um for people who would be interested in this course let's give listeners a quick overview of the kind of things they can expect to learn Okay, so I think um, we started off talking about resili- the field of resilience mm-hmm. research, um, which is a, you know, a massively growing field nowadays of empirical science. So it is using the scientific methodology of psychology to really look at how do humans typically adapt to potentially traumatic events? And so in the course we cover, you know, what is resilience? Um, is it... Uh, are we hardwired for it or is it an elusive trait? Um, what fosters it? Um, how common is it? Can it be taught? All of those things. Um, and essentially, why does resilience research matter for bereavement? Mm-hmm. Um, we bust some myths, don't we? Yeah, I know. I know one of the things that is most likely to get you hot under the collar is people um, sticking with outdated and outmoded theories about bereavement that in fact are not based on science. Not based on science um, and actually really unhelpful and even harmful. So, for instance, the five stages of grief. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's contribution to the field, um, you know, certainly it did advance bereavement research, but actually now that other researchers have dug deeper over time, it has become obvious that people do not go through those very well-known five stages of grief, that actually that is an incredibly oversimplified model and that most of the research around it was done using unrepresentative samples, you know, very limited samples. And the other complaints that I hear from people in training is that they found it too passive. So those five stages are about what is going to happen to you when people really want to put themselves in the driver's seat and have, you know, and some agency around their grief. But worst of all is, um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, that this kind of outmoded, out um, erroneous use of and continued use of the five stages model is actually really harmful. It's one of the most common reasons that people go to grief therapy is they feel like they're not grieving properly because they're not going through the five stages. So I think it is really important that we retire them. Hmm. And as we've already mentioned, I know another one of the myths is that positive emotions shouldn't be present when we're grieving deeply. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I have loved about creating this course with you, Denise, is that we've got to interview some fantastic, you know, globally acclaimed researchers. So Judy Moscovich, you talked to her about Mm. her her work with AIDS patients and those that were supporting HIV. Yeah, so for bereavement and other significant health challenges with illness, yeah. um, how how important positive emotion is in helping us cope with major life challenges and stressors. Yeah, and so many of the new um, ways of looking at bereavement we've covered in this course by mm. interviewing the leading practitioners and researchers in the field, such as Bob Nyemai's groundbreaking work on meaning reconstruction in grief. You know, we know now that the central process that we are required to do when we are coping with loss 
is to somehow make sense of it and rebuild a kind of cohesive life story. So, um, so we've loved interviewing lots of different people. Yeah. And I know the other one of the other ones that that um, a myth that has been busted is this idea that if anyone's ever been told to move on mm. and stop thinking about someone or stop being so attached to them, you'll be able to explain why that is entirely inappropriate and unhelpful yeah absolutely we used to originally um it was thought that it was important for us to sever our attachments to the dead whereas actually we now have a completely different view where we realize the importance of continuing our relationship with the dead so we talk about that continuing bond theory and so yes we're not delusional we know that they've died but actually it's really adaptive and really helps us adapt to their absence by creating a whole new relationship with them so that you can continue to have those people in your life who have died but in absentia. And I know you've talked about ways of actually keeping that person present through thinking about what their legacy to you has Mm. been and thinking about the rituals that you might use to to remember them rather than trying to sever attachment. It's yeah, quite the opposite, isn't and, it? And it's really hugely comforting. So yeah, I you know, I wear a ring that reminds me of Abby. My husband has got a piece of green stone with her photo in it around his neck. Um, we obviously have put all photos and things away of her fro- of her away, but more than that, there are all the little things that we do. Um, you know, we'll often say to each other, "Oh, let's do that," because Abby would have loved that. Um, and in our research and in our training, you and I have come across so many beautiful ways that um, bereaved the bereaved have kind of created um, a new relationship and with those that have passed and how they are memorialising and honouring them by either... I was talking to someone recently who said that he always goes to get his hair cut at the same place that his father went to. You know, once a month he goes to the same barber and I just thought that was a really perfect Lovely. little example of an everyday activity that can bring those that have passed into your current world it just imbues them with an added layer of meaning yeah Yeah. absolutely and so lucy if we think about um your experience of grief what do you wish that the people the professionals who were supporting you had known and what do you really want the the people who do this course to learn i think um it, it is i'm really excited to be able to give those people who are in a supporting, helping role for the bereaved, some tools to answer that hunger for mm. um, for tools and strategies and ways of thinking and acting to help people navigate their own bereavement process. So we all grieve differently, and that's absolutely okay. Um, and so I would urge people to... I mean, we've created this whole kind of big toolkit, sort of smorgasbord, so that there's such a variety of different ways in there. And I think it's really important that people are offered a wide range of evidence-based tools from which they can almost come and pull their own pieces together. In my book, Resilient Grieving, we um, at, at the back of it, we've got this picture of a jigsaw, because that, to me, that's what grief really... That was the image I held in my head, that we have these 
little you know pieces of jigsaw that are strategies and ways of thinking and acting that kind of fit together and my pieces of the jigsaw are different to your pieces of the jigsaw and different to everybody else's but over time it is our um we are able to kind of cultivate our knowledge of what works mm-hmm. for us and so we put those pieces of the jigsaw together we're accumulating knowledge to help us through this journey. Other things that you wanted people to know. I know I know you have you feel really strongly about grief not being pathologized and people appreciating the range of emotions they feel are normal. Do you want to share say something else about that? Yeah, absolutely. I um I think it was really helpful for me understanding the importance of positive emotions for to help us when we are navigating really, you know, tough times. So that meant that for me, I intentionally went on the hunt for positive emotions. So I'm not talking about, you know, trying to be happy all the time, because I certainly didn't feel happy. Um, But knowing that finding inspiration and pride and serenity and moments of mind-blowing awe, Mm -hmm. you know, if I was out walking in the hills... um, that that was actually kind of topping up my emotional piggy bank. I found that really useful. And the other, I think, kind of breakthrough way of thinking for me is I love Tom Attig's work, um, and and we've interviewed Tom for this course. I love the fact that he says that when you go through grief, you can't control your grief reaction. You know, that's your visceral, emotional, exhausting kind of reaction that happens to you. But you can, to you know, a greater or lesser degree, influence your grief response. So I really like the way he makes that distinction between your grief reaction, which are all those physical and emotional um, symptoms that we feel, and then this response, which is a much more deliberate and Active. choice-filled, mm. um, yeah way to approach grief and I know one of the other things that we've spoken about a lot has been um the idea that even in your your darkest days there is hope Mm. hope and it may be Mm. hope for a future or hope for growth and I know you and I have both been um influenced by Chris Futner's work Mm. who's working in palliative care for pediatric palliative care and um I really love his question even in those darkest times, asking the parents of these children, given where you find yourself now, what are you hoping for? Mm, And I really do remember that resonating with me because when something as tragic as um, Abby's death, you know, so it combined trauma and bereavement and your whole world changes overnight, it really struck me that the kind of goalposts of my life and the way of thinking about my life had completely been smashed absolutely to oblivion. And so thinking of Chris Futner, who um, works at the Children's Hospital um, in Philadelphia, thinking of his question about what are you hoping for now, sort of helped me recalibrate my goalposts, my goals and what I was hoping Mm. for. And I honestly remember thinking in those early days that any day that I got out of bed and kind of went through the motions um, in a vague routine, any day that we as a family were mainly functioning was a good day. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so, you know, you absolutely, it's like your life path splits and the road that you thought you were going down has, you know, been absolutely severed and shut down to you. And you have to be forced to go down this new life path. And what does that look like? It looks very different. But I still have hopes in the world. And my hopes were that we would survive her loss and that as a family we would stay together and that my husband and I would stay together and that somehow further down the track we would learn to live with that loss and integrate it into our everyday lives. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's quite a process. And it's you've done that, and I love that, you know, we can think about the hopes in the very small coping day-to-day and then the bigger, longer-term ones. And um, I know one of those, the integration of it and the making something meaningful and useful come in the world mm. um, is really this course, isn't it? Your yeah, book and this course. Yeah, it absolutely is for me. That I think mm-hmm. that has become my contribution to bereavement. But in doing so, it enables Abby's presence in the world and her legacy to live on. It says to me that she didn't, she wasn't here for nothing. She didn't, she did die in vain, but somehow by helping others and all the scores of emails and messages that we get when people read the book, I so often get, you know, emails and messages from people just saying, thank you, um, and you're making your daughter's life count. So that, for me, obviously, is absolutely everything. Yeah, Yeah. making something good come from the bad. Lucy, thank you so much for joining me today on Bringing Wellbeing to Life. I know that this work is going to be valuable for everyone coping with loss and for those who are supporting people coping with loss as well. So for listeners who want to access the course or buy Lucy's book on resilient grieving, you can go to nziwr.co.nz for more information. And the book, of course, actually is widely available globally. So, um, yeah. Or you can go to Lucy's TED Talk, Three Secrets of Resilient People. That's right. So um, thanks so much for inviting me along today, Denise, um, and for all of you for listening and all the work that um, you no doubt do at different points in your life to support those who are coping with loss. Lovely. Thanks, Lucy. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. You can listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz or on nziwr.co.nz or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. To purchase books or online programs on coping with loss and resilient grieving, go to nziwr.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.